living, living full and well, and well, well, well is to put together authentic. We feel it. Take care, care of ourselves. Hello, and welcome back to the Wishing You Well podcast. I'm Amy Albero, founder of Revive Center for Wellness. And I'm Catherine Van Eyck. We're both licensed therapists and wellness enthusiasts. At Revive, we are passionate about holistic practices to help you live your most authentic life. We started Wishing You Well because living a well life isn't as simple as it seems. Because wellness isn't one size fits all, and it can be overwhelming to figure out where to start, we're bringing all the pieces together so you can figure out what fits best for you. Each episode, we'll discuss a variety of topics ranging from taking care of your mental health, relationship, nutrition, fitness, mindfulness, and more. And today we do have a special guest. We have Jess Desai here. She is a therapist from Revive with a background in palliative care. And we're going to be talking about grief and loss today with Jess. So we're going to do things a little bit different. Uh, We're going to have our main topic discussed, and then we're going to get into our reactivity TV because we're going to be talking about the 2006 film, The Holiday, which m- probably many of you are familiar with. I hope so. Uh, and there are a lot. Yeah, I hope so. And there are a lot of themes and and uh, things that we're going to be talking about with Jess that are applicable to the holiday. Um, so we're going to switch it up and we're going to put it at the end. And then, of course, we'll end with our self-care menu. Yay. I'm so excited. Welcome, yes. Jess. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. This is so great. And another one of our own. I know. I know. And and Jess will be our very first Revive therapist to join our podcast besides you and I, Catherine. So we're so excited for you to be our first guest. And yeah, let's let's have our listeners learn a little bit more about you. Yeah. Okay. So um, we're going to just give a little background on you. Um, Jessica earned her bachelor's degree in psychology from Sacred Heart University, followed by her master's degree in social work from New York University. Jess was also an MSW fellow in NYU's Zelda Foster Studies Program in palliative and end-of-life care. She has experience working as a clinician in various hospital settings, supporting individuals and families facing illness, loss, life transitions, anxiety, and depression. Jessica works together with clients from a strength-based approach to identify skills to face life's challenges. Jessica builds a therapeutic relationship with her clients to create a safe space for them to feel heard, process their emotions, and achieve their goals. And that's Jess. That's but there's so much more to her. Yes, <laughs> so we're getting yeah. to know her. I'm, yes, I'm so I'm so excited to have you here. I love having you on our team. I tell Jess, I told her today that meeting meeting with her each week in supervision is one of the brightest points of my week because of the way that she thinks about her work and cares for her clients. It's it's so special. So we're thrilled to have you and learn more from you. I feel like we get the opportunity as revive therapists to learn from you in our weekly supervisions, but this is really cool because this is a topic that I feel like comes up a lot in our work, but also in our lives that, that grief is such a universal experience and yet it feels really, really challenging to navigate. So we're really excited to have you here kind of sharing some of your, your learning, some of your experience and your expertise with us and with our listeners. 
Thank you. I am delighted to be here and to be the first Revive clinician after you two to be on the podcast. Um, And I'm so excited to be talking about grief, which is just one of my favorite things to talk about, which you probably don't hear a lot of people say that. Um, But it really is because like you said, Amy, it's just such a universal human experience and we don't talk about it enough. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm really excited to be here and talk about it with you both. Yes. Well, I want to start off with something that we have been asking all of our guests. This is a wellness podcast. We talk about wellness a lot, and we would love to know what living a well life looks like for you, what it means to you. Yes. um, This question definitely made me think. Um, And so I really think that living a well life means really first of all, getting clear on what your values are and doing what you can every day to live in a way that's aligned with those values. Um, there, I don't know if either of you have read the book or if any of the listeners have read the book, um, Atomic Habits by James Clear, but there's a quote and it's something along the lines of every action that you take or every choice that you make um, is a vote for the person that you want to become. And I love that because it gives you permission to change. It also kind of zooms in on the importance of each little thing that you do and the power of every little thing that you do into contributing towards the life that you want to live. And that's kind of empowering. And so for me, that's, you know, taking care of myself, exercising, eating well, but also having compassion for others, compassion for myself, um, finding time with friends and family, learning new things, going to therapy, all of those things and trying to do it in a balanced way, which I say it like that because I'm not doing that perfectly, but I'm trying. And I feel like the more balanced I am with those things, the more well I I feel. I love that so much. We are big Atomic Habits um, fans, Catherine and I. Um, so that resonates. Um, thank you for for sharing that, and also sharing the the humanity behind. Like I'm trying. Like this is what it this is what it um, looks like for me. This is ideally what it means, and um, it's not easy. And I'm still I'm still working at it. And I think um, having the the honesty, the humanity, the on- authenticity around it also is what contributes to a well life as well. And not putting the pressure on like having to do it perfectly mm-hmm. as well. Right. And I think that this is what the basis of this podcast is really about, right? That we're putting all these pieces together to help people figure out what fits for them. And mm-hmm. you're doing that. You're You're doing all the different pieces to help you find that balance and that's exactly what we're we're talking about. Yes. I loved uh, the episode on identifying values. I that really, really resonated. Yes. Good. Well, I'm glad you're a listener. Yeah. I am a listener. <laughs> <laughs> um okay, so now I obviously Catherine shared your your background, your experience and things like that, but we're always so curious, um, you know, what what kind of brought you to here to like this journey of being a therapist? You know, why why did that resonate with you? Why why, why are you a therapist? Oh, I love that question. Um, 
I have always been definitely a sensitive and deeply feeling person and also a really curious person. And so I feel like being a therapist is such a great marriage of those things because not only does it allow me to learn about human emotion and learn about what makes us tick as human beings, but it allows me to hold space for people to do that too. And that curious part of me, I mean, I get to use that every single day and learn about people and their stories. And I just love that I get to do this for a career. It's it's so cool. Um, and so, you know, like life is just messy and I, I value authenticity. And I feel like, again, therapy is that safe space for people to process all of what life throws at us. And it's just so meaningful. So, so again, so much of what you're, what you're saying totally resonates and you, you took kind of a relatively unique path within the, the world of, of therapy um, that you, um, you had a fellowship around palliative care um, and that you have all of this um, specialized training in, in grief and loss. Can, how did, how did that happen? Absolutely. So, a few things led up to that. Um, NYU is where I went to graduate school, as as you both were talking about earlier. And I'm very, very lucky in that NYU has a very prestigious and excellent training pathway. It's it's called it's a um, fellowship, and it's called the Zelda Foster Studies Program in Palliative and End of Life Care. And you have to apply for it, interview it, um, and interview for it, and it just is such a unique opportunity. And so having that opportunity in front of me, but also reflecting on my graduate level training that I was already in, thinking about human emotion, thinking about some of the hardest parts of life um, and my own experiences with loss and those times where I had just these very complex feelings and life experiences. And it was an opportunity to lean into that. And to lean into the discomfort and to lean into something that is so complex yet so meaningful at the same time. And I got into the fellowship. I had an excellent experience both in my clinical placement, but also in all of the extra curricular aspects and the different types of courses that I had to take as part of the fellowship. Um, you also get mentorship. You get to go to conferences. There's so much that... I decided to lean into the discomfort and the difficulty that can come with grief and loss and illness. And I just, I fell in love with it. It was everything that I had hoped that it would be in terms of the richness and the connection to humanity that it offers. And yes, I I just, I feel lucky that I landed where I did and had the opportunity to experience it because I don't know that I would have if I had done a different graduate program or not had decided to go into the fellowship. Well, I I find it so interesting that, I mean, as you, as you said, even before, before that you love talking about grief and that like you chose grief as this path and this, and this way to journey through your, your therapy profession and, and, and the way that you just said that you lean, you leaned into it. And I think that that's what so many people don't 
do, right? Is that they are not leaning into grief, that they're they're shying away from it. They're closing themselves off of it. And it's it's beautiful that you just decided to actually put yourself into that discomfort for obviously yet for your job, but also just for your learning and for for everything that that fellowship gave to you. Yes. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Cause I think again, that's so much what a part of grief in the process of grief and either for yourself or supporting someone who's grieving is being able to lean into that discomfort. It's such an important part of it. Um, and if you can do that, it can, again, just be so meaningful and it's still hard. It doesn't take away from it being hard, but it can be so meaningful. So when we're, we're kind of talking around like grief and the grief process, um, can you, pretending we're not therapists, right? Yeah. <laughs> can you explain exactly what, what even that means? Like, how do you explain the grief process to people? Yes. Um, so grief itself is the emotional response to loss, right? And that loss doesn't have to be death either. It can be any type of loss. A lot of times it, it ends up being about death because that's the most obvious one, but it is the emotional response to any type of loss. And both the helpful and the challenging thing about grief is that everyone grieves differently. So you might not necessarily be able to look to the person next to you and be like, okay, that's how I should be doing it. Um, And it's okay because you can't look at the person next to you and say, okay, I'm not doing that right. It's so highly individualized and it's so important to figure out what grief looks like for you. Um, And there are just so many factors, you know, culture, gender, past experiences with grief, your relationship to the loss. There are so many things that can affect grief. Um, And there's no linear progression for it. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of sometimes inaccurate expectations in society of what grief is supposed to look like and that it's supposed to be a specific amount of stages that start with shock and denial and end in acceptance. And it typically does not look like that. Um, And what can happen because of that, though, because of these expectations or assumptions about grief is that the individual can feel like they're not grieving right. And that can be scary because they're, you know, pathologizing themselves or saying that there's something wrong with me um, when really more times than not, they might actually be grieving, quote unquote, normally. Um, And people really need to be given permission to grieve how they need to and how it works for them. And although I alluded to, you know, there aren't any there isn't a standardized set of stages that people need to go through. There are a couple of different types of models for either grief, different styles of grief that can be helpful to think about when we think about grief. Um, one of the most common ones that I love to talk to clients about when when normalizing their grief process is it's called the dual process model. It's by um, Strobe and Shoe. And basically 
what the dual process model is, is it's two different types of grief activities. And that makes it sound a lot more fun than it is, <laughs> but it's um, loss-oriented activities and restoration-oriented activities. And basically what that looks like the on the loss-oriented side is really being in the grief, the crying, the looking at the photos of the person, the longing, um, really focusing on the loss. The restoration-oriented activities are doing new things, creating new relationships, taking on roles that your loved one who has passed, let's say, used to have, and now you take them on, or creating something in their memory, the the quote-unquote moving forward activities. And what quote-unquote normal grief can look like is an oscillation or a dance in between going back and forth between the loss-oriented and the restoration-oriented activities. Um, And that zigzag between the two is what looks different for everybody. And you might spend one time in one or the other, and that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. That last piece, well, thank you for sharing all that and and kind of like breaking it down in such a visual way. And, And because I think even understanding that there is this oscillation, that there is this back and forth, and that is quote unquote normal um, in in dealing with and processing grief is so helpful. And a lot of what um, people that I've worked with who have experienced loss really struggle with is the guilt that comes with being in that in that restoration phase. And that's sometimes what might almost bring them back to to that loss. Um, the, the loss activities. Can you, I don't know, speak to that or yeah, yeah, it happens. It happens. I, I hear what you're saying. A lot of people who I've worked with have felt the same exact way. And knowing, I think knowing that it is a, and I don't like, I need to find a new world other than normal, <laughs> but knowing that that maybe is a normative part of the process, I think can be really validating. And just the fact of knowing that it's part of it and other people experience it and other people experience guilt and that's okay, um, can be validating in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And just that moving forward with your grief doesn't mean that you're moving on or forgetting the person. It's just a part of the process. What have been um, some of your biggest learnings when working with people? grieving? Oh, there's so much. Um, one of one of the biggest takeaways that I've gotten from working with people who are grieving, and this might sound a little bit bleak, but stick with me. I promise it's, it's meaningful, um, is the idea that all, all of our relationships are going to end, every single one. They all end either in death or the end of the relationship, but every single one of our relationships end and that can be heartbreaking and incredibly sad. And as humans, we still move towards connection while knowing that. And I think that that is such a beautiful 
aspect of grief and aspect of humanity is that despite knowing that this relationship will end at some point, we don't know when we still move towards connection anyway. And I think that just shows how, how grief is kind of like the price of love. It's, it's all of that unspent love that you still have for that person. You don't stop loving them when, when they're gone. And that's a lot of times what grief can look like. And that's how, that's one of my favorite things that I've learned from working with people with grief. Um, I just got chills when you said that, like in my heart, like squeezed a little bit um, as well. That is like so beautiful and, and really profound. And also I, I often, um, you're a listener of this podcast. So, you know, that I often have my own, uh, in real time <laughs> reactions to things, things that, um, our, our guests have come on and said, but it definitely brings also such a deeper appreciation to relationships that we are engaging in because you're, you're right. It's almost like this active choice to, en- to engage, to connect, even though there is this knowledge that it will be over for one reason or another. I don't, I don't know if this like goes on too much of a tangent, but I wonder how, how much or how often people choose to do that anyway, knowing that grief will inevitably be a part of their relationship with this person or people or thing. Um, it, do people do it because they're not thinking about the grief? Like, are they thinking about just the connection? Are they thinking about how great the connection is and that that's how it's overshadowing the grief? I definitely think so. I, I think that that is possible. I don't think people going around being like, we're going to die one day. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't, I think a lot of people live like that. I've lived like that for a, a huge portion of my life, you know? Um, and so what I think it is though, is that grief reminds us it brings it back to the forefront of okay all of this is temporary and it just it it can add more meaning um and the reason that i say can is that you know what we're talking about and the way that we're framing it right now makes it seem so beautiful and wholesome and yes sad but also so rich and yes that is all true and there is such a full spectrum of emotional responses when we're talking about grief. Um, and yes, typically we we grieve people who have had some sort of meaning in our life. And people are whole human beings. And sometimes it's not all roses and, and beauty when, when they die or when they leave us and we break up um, or we leave them and we break up. Um, and so feelings of relief or anger or humor can come up when we're grieving as well. We're grieving a whole human being. And Amy, before, when you were talking about when people feel guilt, that this is another time where I see this a lot of people feeling guilt around, oh God, I I, I feel kind of sad, but I'm also relieved. Or there's parts of this person that I, I don't miss. And is that allowed? Am I allowed to feel that? And the answer is is yes, of course. I need you to say that again. 
Because <laughs> I think it's really important. Um, yeah, can you repeat that? Yes, of course. Um, just that, you know, when people leave, when we have loss and it's a human being, and whether it's through a breakup or death or some other ending of the relationship, it is okay to feel something other than sadness or something alongside of sadness, whether it be relief or anger or anything else, um, because we are a whole human being and we've lost a whole human being. And there is a full spectrum of what you can experience in reaction to that loss. And it's okay. It is allowed. What do you think makes it so hard for people to allow those other feelings to sit alongside sadness? I think that it goes back to how we as society talk about grief and loss or how we don't talk about grief and loss and that it's not normalized. And so you see it in the movies or what people post on social media and it's all these tributes and all of these beautiful highlight reel type things. And no one really talks about, wow, I'm relieved that my, you know, not to get too dark, but like my abusive father died or my abusive grandmother, you know, someone who I loved, but they also hurt me. And I have some ambiguity there. People don't typically talk about that. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really hard for people to put those feelings somewhere when they have nothing to relate it to. So a lot of it is that outside perspective that they're thinking other people, other people will think that I'm supposed to feel a certain way. So I need to, I, I don't know how to feel both of these things at once. Mm -hmm. I don't know how, if it, I don't know if it's okay for me to feel these other things when other people are telling me that I should only be feeling a certain way. Yes. And that society doesn't, society at large doesn't present these other experiences of grief. And so when we don't see ourselves identified in what society is showing us, we think we must, there must be something wrong with us. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love this work because it's an opportunity to normalize it and to put a human narrative on it because it is so human. It is the one of the main things that we all have in common. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gosh, I had another, I had another kind of tangential question come up. Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just thinking before as, as you were sharing about um, kind of the, the idea that we know at, at some point or another, we're going to, everyone's going to die. We're going to lose all of our relationships. And yet we, seek connection. I was also thinking about how sometimes what I notice kind of gets the other emotions maybe, or someone's experience kind of clouded, um, is that this desire to find meaning in someone's passing or someone's death. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes like trying to find an explanation for like why this is happening or why this is happening to me or that person um, sometimes creates, can like almost invalidate someone's someone's feelings of like this is 
what am I trying to say? I guess kind of holding space for like this bad and and crappy thing happened and it makes me really sad. Um, sometimes I feel like leads people to seek meaning making from it. Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> yes. Do you mean the person who themselves is grieving or do you mean like other people in their life? I think, I think it can be both. I think, mm -hmm. I think someone, you know, might say like, well, at least they're not suffering anymore. Or at, you know, at least that like, at least is like the most invalidating like sentence starter we can possibly <laughs> offer to someone. Um, but I think there's that part of it. And, and I also see like sometimes the meaning making as maybe like a self coping me mechanism that like an individual might do. Um, around like trying to find meaning in in whether it's a whether it's a death a loss in that sense or a breakup or a something else like meaning making sometimes becomes a little bit of a another way to invalidate yes yes um absolutely i think that meaning making can be incredibly healing when it is come to in a natural way and it doesn't feel forced if that makes sense um i think sometimes like when we're talking about meaning making for oneself sometimes at least in my experience in working with clients is that they feel like they're supposed to make meaning and so they they feel like they have to like skip like okay once i make meaning all of these feelings will feel better and I will feel healed. And that the, the rushing and the sense of urgency to get to the meaning making, I think can sometimes not be helpful. Um, and sometimes people are able to make beautiful meaning and not, not the meaning of like everything happens for a reason, because I think that's another one of those platitudes that can be not as helpful. Um, but meaning in the sense of sometimes people will do things in memory of their person or that they've lost or sometimes um, a podcast, another podcast that I highly, highly recommend is Anderson Cooper's podcast. It came out this year, um, All There, All There Is. And Stephen Colbert does an excellent explanation of how he has made meaning out of his multiple losses. And it was around having gratitude for the grief for making him into the person that he is. And again, we have to be also very careful around even the, even the phrasing of having gratitude for grief, because it can take a very, very long time to get there. And he's like decades out of his grief. And so it's taken him time to get there, but that's a way that he has been able to make meaning because he's able to connect with others on such a deep and vulnerable level because of his grief. Mm. And again, meaning making is so personal and so individualized and it can take a really long time to even get to a point where you can make meaning. Mm. And you're so right about, I mean, people think jumping to what lesson can I learn from this? What did, what did that teach me or what can this teach me to heal? Because that that is such a powerful tool, and I, I mean, it, it seems like from from the podcast you're listening to that clearly there's like some deep rooted and like well thought out and time that's gone on reflection, etc. That got got him to that point. But it's important to 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 get across that this isn't going to happen right away, and this isn't going to, and sometimes this doesn't happen at all. 
That is such a good question. I don't know. Sometimes it might not happen. Sometimes it's like, this is a horrible thing that happened and it sucks and that's okay. Um, that might be the meaning that people make of it, you know? So I don't know if, if that can be framed as that is the meaning or if there is no meaning, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's all, again, I feel like the common thread here is how individualized it really, really is. And it can be as soon as we hear ourselves saying, I should be doing this or am I doing this wrong is really those markers of times to pay attention of it's okay. Like it's okay to have the response that you're having. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess along with this, it, it sounds like, um, oh, part of what can be hurtful to someone's grief processing and also can be really helpful if done well is, is like, from your experience, what would, what would actually be helpful or what, what do you, people who are grieving wish their loved ones knew in order to support them better or differently than, than what they're currently doing? Yes. This, this is such a good question because a lot of my work ends up being around this exactly is things that loved ones are doing that they feel like is helpful and they think is so well-meaning and it just isn't hitting right at the moment. And what that can look like is, you know, giving unsolicited advice, anything that comes after at least just take at least out of your vocabulary immediately. Um, any types of platitudes or unsolicited advice is just an easy no-go. Um, a lot of people wish that their loved ones would just follow their lead and not go away. So listen, listen to your loved one who is grieving, follow their lead in the way that they're grieving and don't go away. And the, the other part of don't go away is don't impose a timeline on their grieving. They, they may and likely will potentially get to a point where you're like, all right, are they going to get over this? You know, what's going on? Why are they still grieving? And so many clients who I work with experience are on the receiving end of that. And, and all that does is make the person feel like there's something wrong with them. Um, And so just really being able to sit with the person in their grief and their discomfort, um, And again, following their lead, allowing it to be on their timeline. And then just practically, like if, if it's, if it's really hard to just sit in the discomfort and you really feel like you need to do something, um, a very common thing that I have at least noticed that people typically appreciate is practical help, like just offering to make meals, offering to walk the person's dog or babysit their kids if they have kids, just practical help with consent and with, you know, an okay also typically doesn't hurt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that that definitely um, parallels what I've, I've heard my clients say as well, and especially the, you know, 
kind of stick around. And I've heard you speak about this in different contexts. Like there's, there is this wave of support kind of more immediately after during services in the first like couple of weeks. And then, and then after afterward, it's sort of like out of sight, out of mind. And that is a really isolating period of time. And, and so that, that nudge to, to people who um, are, are close to, to those who have lost someone, like that nudge to like continue to check in, I think is really helpful um, because, yeah, it can feel like multiple losses at once, kind of this loss, this acute loss, and then all of this loss of support um, right after. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and um, either in my internship or in graduate school, I remember hearing it being referred to as like the casserole stage of like that six-ish weeks is typically the the sweet spot of all of this support coming in. The shock is there, the funeral, all of the all of the um ceremonies, everything is happening all at once and then it fades off. Mm-hmm. And typically the fading off period is actually harder because like you said, it's that multiple loss mm-hmm. um, of now the loss of support as well. So definitely, you know, don't go away is something I, I hear a lot of clients say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious how that switched around during COVID where a lot of things were delayed and postponed, um, memorial services and, and burials and, like, and things like that, that um, I wonder how that changed that little six week period or, or, or that there was that six week period and then there was a circling back that doesn't typically happen. Um, but there also was a lot missing in, in terms of people not being able to get together in the ways that they would typically. Um, so yeah, I, I wonder what that, what that was kind of like to, um, like how that shifted the, the process of, of grief. I'm so happy you said that, Catherine, because it really did shift. Um, people typically after a death, you know, things moved virtual. There's a meal train on like a website that you can just like sign up for. There, there's ways of still doing like the quote unquote casserole type of support. But you touched on something so important, which is the the ceremonial aspect um, of not being able to like a lot of people it's important for them to bury a loved one or to have a service or all of those rituals that we associate with grief and kind of give a container for us to communal communally grieve were kind of gone or delayed and pushed back and that can really it did add complexity to the grieving process for people because it felt a little bit untethered of you know I've lost this person and I've gotten through the first few weeks of the shock, but there's no tying up of it. There's no ritual that I can really pour this grief into or get the support and be with my community. It's, it's, and for different types of cultures and, and different levels of significance within those cultures, it really does have an impact on, on complicating people's grief process. And it was, it was tough. A lot of people struggled with that. What do we think? Is it time for a water break? Okay. Well, you were talking about how people can grieve different types of losses, 
It's not just when it comes to death. And we were curious about what you might suggest for them, especially when they're not receiving the same kind of treatment that those who do experience loss through a death do. I definitely think this is really important to talk about because loss isn't just death. You can experience the loss of a relationship, the loss of your health or your able-bodiedness at any time, um, the loss of unmet expectations or the loss of a relationship with somebody that you wish it was. Um, And a lot of times what can happen is A, we might not even recognize that it is loss or it is grief that we're feeling. Um, so to really recognize and validate that for yourself, that it it likely is loss and that's okay. And also that society might also not, not see that as loss. And that's probably why you might not be recognizing it as loss and what that can lead to is something called disenfranchised grief, um, which can happen with more um, ambiguous losses with death, but also when it's just a different type of loss. And basically what that means is society doesn't really acknowledge it or value it. And so just knowing that if it is a loss, then you are likely still experiencing grief and naming that and validating that for yourself and finding people who will get you and listen to you and support you, whether that's a loved one, a friend or a therapist and, and processing that with them because it can feel very real because it is really real. So people might need the exact same kind of support, even if it's not through death. Yeah, absolutely. Just like with death, there's like a whole spectrum of like, depending on how the relationship was to you, um, same with the loss, depending on how big of a part of your life the loss was, might vary the amount of support you need, but you very well could need the same amount of support as as loss with death. I'm so happy you shared this because for me per- personally and as a therapist, this is a relatively new learning for me. Um, and I think it really came up for me a lot through COVID, not not only related to the deaths related to, to COVID and whatnot, but th- that entire year and years, we experienced so much loss and being able to see it through that framework allowed for me to have a lot more compassion with myself around the feelings that I was having. And also, of course, being able to extend that to the people that I worked with and, and loved ones and whatnot. But I think it is so important to highlight just what you're saying that that there are so many different ways that loss can look and it is because of that it is so important and so important to our healing um, and meaningful to our healing to be able to extend the same quote unquote treatment um, to ourselves yeah that that compassion that grace that patience um, that space to to actually feel the feelings and not just kind of move on or squash them. Absolutely. And also the power of language and being able to just like naming any other emotion and being able to label that emotion can be empowering for ourselves. Same thing with loss, being able to identify and name it and utilize language to see like, oh, this is loss. This is grief can be helpful in and of itself. Big question. Biggest question, maybe. I'm ready. (laughs) I feel like I need to give you a drum roll. (laughs) 
So is it possible to actually get over a loss? Does it happen? That is a big question. <laughs> um, a lot of times clients and people in life, not just in the therapy room, will say or feel like they need to move on or are fearful of moving on and forgetting and or they feel like they need to get over the loss. Um, and the way that I like to reframe that is it's not moving on from, but it's moving forward with. So do you ever really get over a loss? Do you forget the person? Do you stop having feelings for that person or that thing in your life that you have lost? Probably not. The, the grief never ends. And that doesn't mean that it's going to feel as acute and as strong as it does in the beginning. It probably won't. Um, and it probably won't ever leave. And that can be overwhelming or jarring to hear. And there is an analogy that I love, and you both might have heard it before, but there is, it's basically to imagine your grief as a button in a jar and there is a ball in that jar and the the when you first experience loss the jar is pretty small it like just fits over the ball and there's the button and the button is your grief and life goes along and the jar is shaking and the ball is constantly hitting that button all the time and every time that button is hit you just feel this jarring, no pun intended, jarring sense of grief and loss and sadness or whatever feelings for you are associated with grief. You feel it all the time. It's really heavy and it hurts. And as time goes on and as your life expands, the jar expands. And so there's more room in the jar for the ball to move around and it's hitting the button less and the button still hurts and it still doesn't feel great. But as life continues, the the jar gets bigger and, and the ball is still hitting the button, but it might not be as often or it might feel different. You know, sometimes the level of intensity on that button also isn't as strong. Um, and again, this is just an analogy and not everyone's grief even looks like that. That is how highly individualized grief is. This That analogy is not one size fits all, but it can be helpful to think about when you wonder, will grief ever go away? And when the answer to that is is no, it doesn't ever go away, but it likely feels different and is integrated into your life differently. I, I have to admit, I've never heard that analogy before. I love it. I thought you were going a different direction and saying that the ball gets smaller and that makes so much more sense that the jar gets bigger. I have heard a version. There's a lot of different versions of it. And that is the, the, the ball can get smaller too, or the button gets smaller. <laughs> and maybe for some people, that's what it looks like, right? Cause there's so many different ways. Um, and that's why it can also be important to be cautious, even when thinking about analogies, like, yes, they can be helpful and don't completely attach yourself to them because it is such an individualized and people are probably sick of hearing me say this, but it is such an individualized process. And 
if you feel like you're not doing it right, that's that's okay. And maybe talking to someone about it might help. We are talking a lot about um, supporting other people and like being being the person on the outside of grief. I, I mean, as well as the person that is grieving. Um, and if I'm the one grieving, what can I do to help myself and to help heal myself? And what can I expect from others? So to help yourself, there's a way that it was phrased on the the podcast, All There Is with Anderson Cooper. Uh, there's a segment where he like has people who've experienced grief call in and a specific woman phrased it so beautifully. She had something along the lines of holding it all gently holding your grief and your grief experience gently and with self-compassion and don't have any expectations of yourself. Don't have any limitations or time constraints or judgments on yourself. Hold your grief experience gently and trust yourself and listen to yourself. You know, I mean, we, we talk about not having expectations for yourself, you know, try to eat a little bit, try to try to take care of your basic needs, but past that, do not expect yourself. And when I say no expectations, especially in the beginning is mainly what I'm talking about. Um, but holding your grief experience gently and not letting society's expectations of you and your grief process make you feel like you're doing it wrong. Um, and in part of that, listening to yourself and trusting yourself is finding out what your grieving style is and what you need. Um, like before, when we were talking about the the dual process model of grieving, um, there's also the um, the two grieving styles of intuitive versus in- instrumental types of grief. And it was developed by two psychiatrists who I should credit, um, the Terry Martin and, and Kenneth Doka did the two styles of grieving, the intuitive versus instrumental. And it's another helpful way to conceptualize taking care of yourself during grief and more so having language to name what your grieving style is to normalize it for yourself. Um, intuitive is really that style is what it sounds like. It's really emotion led and the, the crying and the, the really feeling your feelings. Um, and, you know, I had, I had a professor describe it as like the crying and eating the, the pint of Ben and Jerry's and like watching the sad movie and listening to the sad music. They're really feeling your feelings and instrumental grieving on the other hand is really action oriented and cognitively oriented. Some people will just like run a marathon, like literally like sign up for a marathon in honor of their person or create some type of legacy thing for their person. Or the question that they ask themselves is what can I do? It's very action oriented. And your grieving style is typically falls on a spectrum there and neither is right. Sometimes society has the expectation of you have to, you have to go to therapy. You have to talk about it. Um, you might not have to. If, if you're processing, especially if you are an instrumental griever, 
and it's working for you, that's okay. You you can fall more on that side of the spectrum. And that also doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. Um, and so when we talk about how can I help and heal myself is, again, listening to yourself, trusting yourself and playing around with, okay, what's working for me? Am I, am I crying a lot? Am I in my feels? Am I needing to go do something and book a vacation or go, you know, run a marathon and sign up for a marathon that might work for you. And that's okay. I think knowing yourself more and listening to yourself more is, is one of the best ways that you can heal yourself. Um, you also have said, what can I expect from others? And that is a, that is definitely a trickier one. Um, I think not being afraid to ask for what you need is important because a lot of times people want to help and they have no idea how, because as we've talked about this whole podcast, it's like grief is tricky and it's uncomfortable and people don't want to talk about it, but they know it's hard. So they want to help you. And it's awkward and clunky a lot of times because it's not normalized. And so if you're able to articulate what you need, I think it can be better to ask for what you need versus having an expectation on other people. That, that was such a, such a great answer um, to a really complicated question. So thank you for that. Um, and so a couple of things that I, I really want to highlight that you said are, A, I mean, of course, um, Grief is individual, like an individual experience, an individual process. And to uh, to honor that is one way to like experience your own healing and to kind of meet yourself where you're at, um, to like listen to yourself and, and meet yourself where you're at and, and honor that. Um, one thing that you also said at the beginning that I want to bring up is um, essentially like letting yourself feel your feelings and and I know at the beginning of our podcast, we talked a lot about guilt and the role that guilt can play. And and guilt often becomes a thing that can kind of like cause people to maybe squash their feelings or maybe their guilt is even leading more towards shame around like, what does this mean about me that I'm having these feelings about this this person or this loss? And and I think what we all know as therapists is, is that when guilt and shame get involved with our feelings, that it, it actually makes it much more difficult to heal through things um, when we give ourselves the space to to feel our feelings um, and to, to process them, understand them is is how is one way that we can heal. So I'm I'm really glad that you um, that you touched on that um, and that this the last part around um, having expectations. Um, we talk about that a lot on this podcast in in different contexts around like um, it's really challenging to have expectations of others and not. Um, actually let people know what they are. And so um, trying to be attuned and attuned to and aware of our own needs and, and then being vulnerable enough to put ourselves out there to ask for them is, is again, another way that we heal, um, which again, is much more vulnerable after a loss to kind of let people in and connect to us. Um, but it is the kind of the only way that we'll get those needs met because um, it's, it's really hard to meet them all on our own. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree with everything you said. Um, and again, people typically, especially there, there is this communal aspect to grief where people typically want to really help and they don't know how. So 
if it feels better to frame it in this way, yes, it, it can. It's absolutely vulnerable to ask for your needs to be met, especially when you're grieving. And again, if it's helpful to frame it in this way, it is helpful for the other person to be like, okay, this is what they need. Got it. I can help them with this. Yeah. And, and I guess along with that, something Catherine and I talk about a lot when it comes to um, when we've talked about dealing with other types of emotions, like anxiety um, is also probably with that, like knowing who to ask for those needs to get met um, that like not everyone on your docket is probably going to be the, the best source of support for all of any, any particular need. So probably trying to really think about the resources that you have um, is going to be important too. Absolutely. You know, those people in your life who you notice are good listeners or who really sit with you in what you're going through and not really making it about them. Um, definitely kind of, you know, parsing through your social supports that you hopefully have is, is definitely helpful. Right. Any, any last things for people to know when it comes to grief before we get into the holiday? Yes. Um, continuing this conversation of how, like how to support people who are grieving is it's really important to, and again, this is something I've heard so many times from people who are grieving is resist the urge to make them feel better. I know that when, seeing someone who is suffering, the first thing typically people want to do is just take it away or, or make them feel better. Um, most people want to be seen for what they're going through. And so, you know, try to know about your level of comfortability with grief and with loss, um, what you can tolerate. And if you can sit with them in the discomfort and hold space for them and let them fully have that space. Um, don't offer your experiences with grief unless they're asking for it, you know, just really giving them space to be who they are and show what they're feeling is the best typically thing that you can do. I'm going to be so annoying and ask for like concrete language, <laughs> which I kind of feel okay about because, um, our roles are reversed a little bit here, Jess, um, mm -hmm. the language. What is some language that um, you can give just to, to someone to say mm. around this? Is it as simple as how are you? Like, what does that sound like? Because again, they're not therapists here. What is holding space? What, what is yes. That's true. I'm using the therapist lingo. We got to make it relatable. <laughs> <laughs> but that's so true. And I'm so happy you pointed that out because like, what do you say? Right. Um, and language can be so helpful. Making observations, reflecting back what you see. I see that this is so hard for you right now. How can I support you? Um, I see your hurt. I see your pain. Just making observations and then letting there be silence can be really, really helpful. Like telling the person, I see you and I'm not going anywhere. Um, that can be very, very helpful. 
it sounds it sounds to me like what you were talking about at the at the beginning and and what we've talked about a lot is because grief is so individualized it can feel so isolating and so letting someone know that they're they're seen in this while they're feeling this loss or maybe feeling lost period um like can be can be so so meaningful so impactful to to them feeling less alone sometimes and again it's highly individualized so this might not what be what everyone might want but a lot of people want to still talk about the person who they've lost and so creating space for the person to tell stories about like funny stories or heartwarming stories about the person and to be able and to be concrete about again holding space it can be helpful to ask like for consent about like would it be i, I have a funny story i'd love to share about them like would you like to hear it? You know, um, because a lot of times two people walk on eggshells and they don't want to hurt the person more, but sometimes the person that's what they they want most is they miss that person and they want to, they want to remember and they want to remember the good things. I love that. Yeah, me too. Okay. Well, we are going to continue talking about this on our reactivity TV. Mm-hmm. So more to come. So welcome back. This is Reactivity TV. And if you are tuning in on YouTube for the full length Reactivity TV, we are doing this a little bit different today. This is at the end of our podcast episode with Jess Desai, all about grief. So we talked a lot about grief and loss and supporting those who are going through it and healing ourselves through it. And we thought it was the perfect opportunity to talk about a holiday movie around this time and a holiday movie that involves a lot of the same types of things we've been talking about. And that movie is The Holiday. Um, So (laughs) we're going to get into talking about that from our therapist perspective as per usual. And um, so, yeah, if you are tuning in on YouTube, then make sure to circle back and and listen to the whole episode so you get the full effect. Um, and if you're continuing from the podcast, well, welcome back. And here we go. Yeah. And this is, this is your first time guest. I mean, well, this is, you are the first guest we ever had in reactivity TV. Um, and we, and we kind of made a, made a decision based, especially because it's you and because of this movie, because it felt so perfect to be able to kind of invite you in and apply your learnings and what we've just learned from you to this holiday classic, um, which apparently you've never seen before. <laughs> I can't believe yes. that. Yes. I am one of the only people on this planet who has not seen this movie. Well, I saw it the, the other day, but <laughs> up until then I was one of the only people who had never seen it. And it was so cute. I'm so happy. I got to watch it for this podcast. You're welcome. <laughs> well, I'm glad you liked it also because, um, we don't critique move, movies or TV shows anywhere on this, mm-hmm. but this is one of my favorites. Greatest movie of all time, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> it might so be sweet. in my top five or top ten, like, outside of Christmas holiday movies. Like, this is... I have to watch it every year. It's just... Yeah, so it's a classic. <laughs> yes. 
while I was watching it, because I remember before, like leading up to the podcast, you had mentioned that Catherine and the whole time I was watching, I'm like, I get it. I get why Catherine loves this movie. It is just so wholesome. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And so, um, you know, as Catherine was saying, we're not here to critique movies. We're more here to give our therapist perspective, our therapist take on, on what we're, on what we're watching, on what we're viewing. And this movie felt so, well, A, perfect because, you know, it's the holidays and it's the holiday. Um, And it felt like it gave so many different opportunities to look at different types of grief and different ways to process grief. And, And so I guess with that, I mean, who wants to, who wants to kick us off? I mean, Jess, do you want, do you want to start and just maybe talk about, you know, kind of a, a main theme or a main takeaway for you as you watch this? Absolutely. And I, I just have to say, overall, I was pretty impressed with, how, especially, I think it came out in 2006. Like, I'm I'm impressed with its ability, like the movie's ability to really highlight the different ways that people grieve. I was really like, wow, this is so great. Um, while also being so wholesome, it just, it felt real. It felt authentic and it felt wholesome. And that's kind of just my zoomed out overall impression. But a big takeaway for me is I think they did a really, really great job highlighting two specific grieving styles that we were talking about earlier in the podcast, which is the intuitive and instrumental styles of grief. And I know one thing that we were saying earlier is that, you know, it all falls on a spectrum and both Kate Winslet's character, Iris and Cameron Diaz's character, Amanda show a little bit of both of intuitive and instrumental grieving throughout the movie. Um, And, but also start off on seemingly different ends of the spectrum, right? In the beginning, you see Kate Winslet ending of a relationship really in the intuitive style of grieving, right? She's feeling her feelings. She's going into her house and she cries immediately when she closes the door. Um, It was kind of a little comical how she like is feeding her little dog and she's like, (laughs) you know, puts the, puts the food on the floor, but it's just a really, you know, very much strongly intuitive style of grief. And, And we also see further on in the movie when she has the friendship with with the older gentleman who's the who's Amanda's neighbor and really invests her time and her energy into him and um all of the the that award ceremony for him and and really kind of making that her passion project you also see her going into that instrumental side of of grieving that ending of the complicated relationship um in an instrumental way of, of taking action. And with Cameron Diaz's character, Amanda, it kind of starts off on a different end of the spectrum of she, she is kind of also in the ending of a relationship and she physically cannot cry. Right. And that, um, so she's like, let's go on a vacation. Let's book a trip. Like that was her immediate (laughs) response. (laughs) Um, and again, it it highlights an, an more action oriented style of yes she didn't seem super sad that the relationship was ending but it was still a loss and her her way of kind of coping with that loss was doing something about it um and i just you know it's it's so silly all the scenes of her like trying to cry and she can't but um 
I think overall this movie in a wholesome, sweet, and sometimes funny way. And in that normalizing this grief process in all the different ways that people can grieve and all the different styles of grieving specifically on that spectrum of, of intuitive versus instrumental. I think that was one of my biggest takeaways from this. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I, like I said, I love this movie and I've seen this movie so many times. I never looked at it in terms of one of them starting on one end and ending on the other. And one of them starting on one end and ending on the other, uh, like that it's flipped and that that's so cool. And I'm, and I'm glad that you uh, made that connection to the instrumental and intuitive grieving. It's, it's right there. <laughs> it was right there. Cause you're right too. Cause um, at some point, I don't know if we're like spoiling or not, but yeah. uh, everyone's seen it, but me, <laughs> <laughs> but at the, at, towards the end, Cameron Diaz is able to cry mm-hmm. um, because she allows herself to get vulnerable in a different way. And, and again, not that there's something wrong with her that she couldn't cry, not pathologizing it here, but it is interesting how she moves through the different styles for sure. Well, and there's so much of her, she, I think she had said she, she really hasn't been able to cry since her parents got divorced. Right. Which mm-hmm. is another, another type of loss. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder, did she really ever process that? Um, did she really ever process her feelings around that um, to allow herself the, sp- the space, the vulnerability to cry? You know, it wasn't until you know, she really had that moment with Graham's daughters and they're kind of talking about the three musketeers that we kind of see her kind of feel her feelings. Um, and that to me kind of was a little indicator of like, oh, there's there's some unresolved stuff here. And as we talked about earlier on in our overall kind of grief discussion around like we allowing ourselves to feel our feelings is, is a way toward healing. And in this movie, Amanda had sounds like several years in between the initial loss and, and feeling her feelings. Um, She got there, which is great to see. Um, But yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was, what I was wondering about as I was watching is, huh, is this her unresolved grief coming out here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, she, she was burying herself in her job and she was super successful and built up this whole company and, the, the doing, the doing was there. The doing was, was, was super present. And that feelings part was totally, totally out there. I mean, um, when she was breaking up with her boyfriend in the beginning and he said, I think you're the only person that breaks up with their boyfriend and doesn't cry, doesn't shed a tear. Mm-hmm. Can, can we shift in, in talking about maybe the more obvious um, grief? which was Graham, Jude Law's character. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Kind of wondering yeah. wondering your your perspective on that. Absolutely. Oh my goodness, yes. I thought it was beautiful. Um, A, because again, I knew nothing about this movie. I did not expect that twist about halfway through of, you know, the two women call women, quote unquote, calling him on the phone are actually his two daughters. And um, he is a widower. And that is something that, you know, throughout the first half of the movie, you don't know about him. And you're kind of in Amanda's shoes of like, you find out with her of this is this whole aspect of his life that he had been hiding and almost like protecting and not 
not really being vulnerable about. He he felt the need to protect himself, but I think also his his family and because I, I believe the loss is still relatively new, like within a couple of years, and he's still figuring it out. And one of the most meaningful moments for me is that like little monologue that he has when they're in his house. And I think they're like in his office or a library. And she's like, why didn't you tell me? And he kind of goes on this tangent of like, it's so much easier for me to just be a normal guy. And when I come home, I'm a full-time working parent. I'm mom and dad. I'm the guy who reads parenting books and, and cookbooks before I go to bed. I sew. I'm I'm Mr. Napkin Head. <laughs> um, and he just talks about how he's on this constant overload and trying to just compartmentalize his life until he figures out how to do this, like how to put himself back out there. And I thought he he humanized that experience beautifully and it's interesting that while through that process of humanizing his grief and just putting it all out there and being vulnerable for him or for himself and for for Amanda's character it's right around that same time that he is able to express that he loves her and that he's able to find love again and and really find healing in that vulnerability. And yes, does life always work out that beautifully? Probably not. But I think it's just such a what felt very real was was him talking about his experience with grief and the overwhelm and the practical parts of it and him just being a human trying to figure it out. And I thought his vulnerability there was was so meaningful and again, helped him with his healing. Mm-hmm. Now, now, what about, so, so if he's, he's compartmentalizing these two parts of his life, his, his mm-hmm. role as, as, as a parent and, and, and a widower and all of that. And then, and, and he even says to Cameron Diaz that he, that he cries all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a, he's a major weeper. And then he, um, and then he also on this other, like this normal guy side of his life goes out a lot. He drinks pretty often and gets pretty intoxicated and he sleeps with a lot of women. And so how would you, I guess, like, how would you characterize that kind of grief where he's doing these two things are, and, and are any of these things that he's doing right or wrong are any of these things that he's doing actually productive or any, or are all of these things that he's doing productive? I, what, what do you think? That is such a good question. Um, I think the part pre like monologue or like pre him coming into this movie, right. Where he's going out drinking, you know, sleeping with a lot of women, doing all of the things, um, but also crying a lot and also being a dad and, and all of that. I think that is the overwhelm that he's describing. And I don't know if I would say if it's like good or bad. I I just wonder, is it serving him? And that's probably like such a therapist answer, but like, you know, how helpful or unhelpful was that to him? Um, I wonder if it was part of like, I I wish I could have him as a client. I wish I could ask him these questions. (laughs) 
<laughs> be nice to have Jude Law as a client. Um, no, I'm kidding. But uh, <laughs> um, I think it just is like the messiness of life and he's trying to figure it out. And I would wonder, or I would ask him, is this helpful? Like, is the, do you think this is helpful for you? How is this helping you process what you're going through? Um, yeah. And I, I wonder too, like in thinking about that question, and then he has this monologue of like venting it out loud of everything. Like, I wonder where other space he's ever had the opportunity to say that to anyone else, to himself. Because again, we see this monologue that he has of talking about all of the things that he's doing and then things start to shift after that. So I also wonder too, if like there was all the things happening beforehand that we're talking about, then the realization and the vulnerability and the human connection of, okay, this is what I'm going through. And then again, it's, it's kind of filling in the blanks here, but we're assuming that he's no longer going out and drinking and sleeping with all the women and all that. Now that he's kind of like, found this connection with Amanda. Mm -hmm. Um, but I really think it's almost like a, a, a realistic, not, not everyone does that, but it's almost like it's showing you all of the parts of how this can be messy. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, we as therapists and on this, on this podcast a lot, we talk a lot about how, you know, people are so resourceful, like they are so, so good at getting their needs met. And I would be curious with him like what need this is meeting for him and and it might be a need to not deal with it you know to not maybe he's not ready to to grieve or or to process his grief in quite an emotional way like maybe this is a space that he can just be a guy that you know goes out and has a good time and doesn't have to think about all these other things i don't know mm -hmm. um but but that's kind of what it struck me as too. Like, okay, so he's being really resourceful. He's being pretty kind of quote unquote adaptive um, given what he's been um, kind of hit with. And the other thing that, that it was just making me think as you were saying is part of, part of the aspect that we can't ignore is gender and culture. He is a man and there are all sorts of, um, um, preconceived notions about what men are quote unquote allowed to do with their feelings, mm -hmm. um, what's acceptable and what's not. And I'm not super familiar with British culture, but, but there, they do culturally tend to be a lot more buttoned up around emotion than, than we are here in, in the U S. And so I think with those two, things in mind, I am curious about, as you were just saying, like, did he really have the space, the permission, so to speak, to actually be vulnerable with his emotions? I don't know. Yeah. I'm also really happy that you brought up the aspect of like culture and gender and their expectations on grief, because again, it can't, it reminds me of sometimes, um, inaccurately the the intuitive versus instrumental grief can be gendered like a lot of times people might think like the intuitive oh like females typically tend to feel their feelings and males tend to go out and do the thing and so i'm seeing i'm i'm wondering like alongside you is did he see going out and drinking and sleeping with women and and doing all of those things as 
an instrumental style of grieving, was that the only socially acceptable what way for him consciously or unconsciously because of societal pressures for him to process this grief. Mm-hmm. Another character I wanted to bring up is Arthur. Um, Arthur's in a much later stage of grief. Um, we see him uh, talk about his late wife with a lot of admiration. And he just talks about these happy memories that he had Uh honestly about his wife but then also about um his his past abilities um and his career and um so yeah i'm just curious about what what you thought about arthur and and how he was how he was grieving i loved arthur such such an adorable character and a really meaningful example of grief um in that it seemed like at least what stood out to me with his relationship to grief and loss. Yes. He talks about his late wife and it's, it's beautiful to listen to. And it sounds like the grief that he might've been struggling with more was the grief of his like able-bodiedness, like walking up the stairs uh, to get onto the stage for his event seemed to be, and not just that, but just showing up the the loss of youth, the loss of of everything that comes with that. Because as you can see, he's been throwing those letters in the garbage to go to this big event that was honoring him. And it seemed like what was holding him back was everyone seeing him on stage, you know, with the walk. Like I think he described it as like the old man with the walker, and he didn't want to be seen that way. And so even though he had lost his wife, it seemed like that had been something that he had processed and worked through and he was still struggling. But um, Kate Winslet's character, Iris, kind of really helped him to to move through that and to build the confidence. And it just shows the the importance of support and people who care and will listen at, at any and every stage of our life and how different things that we grieve like we were talking about earlier in the podcast about loss and how they are also very much grief when we talk about like loss of able bodiness or loss of, of certain roles or abilities or, or our youth. Um, that's what really stood out with Arthur for me. Yeah. And I, I thank you for highlighting all of those, diff- all of those losses too. And um, yeah, that, gosh, such a, such a fave that, that man. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, and, and so much of what can be challenging with loss is, is loss of our role. Right. And so that seemed to be what he was really contending with a lot. And with Iris's help, he was able to have like a, a, a reestablished sense of role and purpose. And, um, and that was really helpful to his healing. And yeah, it was really just beautiful to see. Oh, the holiday. Yes. Yes. Still good all these years later. All these years later. (laughs) It does. It does. Even the blockbuster scene. I mean, who doesn't miss a blockbuster scene? (laughs) You're talking about the, um, like the trailer? No, when, oh, well, yeah. No, 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 no. When, uh, when Iris and, uh, and Miles are blockbuster. (laughs) I know. So what he's singing. I love Jack Black. Oh, I love him. It was funny to see him in like a more serious role mm-hmm. too. 
Yeah. Right. But still be Jack. But still be Jack. Still be him with the singing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, that's such a great, this was so fun having a guest in reactivity TV. Thank you for, for applying your, um, your grief lens, your therapist lens to, to this movie. Um, Wow, this is great. You can you can come on our activity TV anytime, Jess. Oh my god, please. I would love to. <laughs> I'll get into the bachelor. Like yes. Okay. You, yeah. heard it. you heard it here. Great. <laughs> the season starts January 21st, maybe, I think. Yeah, something around that. Yeah, yeah. So you have some time. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so um, before we get into our self-care menu, why don't we wrap up our entire podcast, including Reactivity TV, with um, some of like main takeaways around around grief and loss, navigating that process. Um, what do you think, Catherine? What do you what's what are some of your like main main takeaways here? Um, definitely about how there are so many different ways to go about grieving um, that the grieving process can take you down so many different avenues and it's different for everybody going through grief. Um, And yeah, the, the way that the way that you might approach it and the way that you might process through your grief can vary from one, one loss to the next. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, I think definitely that's that's the big one. I know I know Jess you um you had said something like um we're you know everyone's probably like just sick of hearing you say it's individualized, but I'm so glad that you kept saying that it's individualized um because that that's kind of my main top takeaway as well is that um something that you said right off the top is that um how someone else next to us is grieving is different than can be different than us. And, and that doesn't mean that they're doing it wrong or, or we are because it looks different. And I think giving people permission to grieve as they need to, as, um, as they see fit and as they feel is best for them is so, so fundamentally important and um, can be so like helpful in validating and normalizing someone else's um, experience. And, and I think maybe that that is the thing um, that makes grief maybe so complicated is there's no normal way except your way, like except what's right and good for you. Um, and, and so that's kind of the main, the main top takeaway um, for me, um, for sure. So I love your takeaways. I'm so happy. <laughs> Is there any that you, any other things that we missed that you think like we need to highlight hammer home? I can't think of any, but just know that just be kind to yourself and trust yourself and have compassion. Like if you do anything while you yourself are grieving, it is that just it's probably going to hurt and not feel great and know that it will change and shift over time at some point. Um, And that 
something that I noticed that I've said too, and I'm just noticing as I said it out loud actually, is that with time, that that is sometimes people think like, okay, I just have to get through the first year and I'll be okay. Cause it's all the anniversaries and things like that. But just know that if the second year is harder, that's also okay. Cause you've gotten through the first year and you're expecting to feel better. And if you don't, that that's okay. Um, but through now for through forever, at some point it will, it will shift. And over that first year, it will shift. And over that second year, it will shift and hold yourself gently through all of that. I love that. Okay. Well, thank you, Jess. We will, we will now get into our self-care menu. Um, We created this menu because we wanted to communicate new and creative, intentional and attainable ways for our listeners to think about their own self-care. I know you're familiar with this, but Amy and I will ask each other what's on our menu. But now, of course, we're going to ask you first, what is on your menu today? Yes, I have to think about this. I will be transparent in that be with the hustle and bustle of the holidays. I've actually fallen off my self-care a little bit. So this is going to hold me accountable. Um, I don't know if it would be like an appetizer or a main course, but I'm going to identify it as a main course because of its level of importance for me is doing two Peloton rides between now and... Christmas day Mm -hmm. because I have done none in like a week and exercise and moving my body is such an important part of my self-care. So that is my main course is, is getting some movement in. And for me, that's Peloton because it's so much fun. Um, And then I would say I'm doing this out of order, but an appetizer for me would also be on the days of, of, that are busier for me, which tends to be like Christmas, even Christmas day is building in a mindfulness practice in the morning, just because those days go by so quickly. And it's important for me this year to be intentional about that, just because I noticed that all the times it goes by so quickly. And so I think for me, you know, doing something on like insight timer, just a nice mindfulness guided meditation of some sort in the morning on those two days. Is something else I'm going to do. Um, you, you are not alone with self-care falling off. That's something Catherine and I have been talking a lot about. Um, so hard relate. And if you if you really want to be held accountable, just you know, can you can slack me and Catherine when you finish your two um, Peloton rides. If you, you need a ca- accountability partners, we, we do that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Uh, what about you, Catherine? What's on your menu? Um, so I'm going to narrow this down because, um, I think that I just get so excited when there's, when I have a break ahead of me that I'm like, I'm going to do all of, all of the self-care things. Um, but I want to just definitely focus on one of them. And that one's reading. I love, I don't know what it is about like this particular break that I think usually every year I read like a book or two during that one week, which is like really fast for me because I typically take like a while to finish books because I'm not reading every single night and not a lot every single night. Um, So yeah, so that's going to be, it's going to be an appetizer, um, but it'll be like a little, 
it, I'm, I'm going to steal from our from our episode with Elizabeth. It's going to be like a tapas every day. <laughs> I'm gonna have I love that. Lots and lots of reading. Okay. Do you have a book picked out already or no? I just started a book yesterday. It's called All My Rage. Mm. I don't know if either of you have heard of it, but it's good so far. I'm like 20 pages in, but cool. yeah, I'll keep you posted. Yeah. Enjoy your tapas. That's okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> How about you? Um, let's see. I continue to struggle with self-care. Um, I've, uh, I'm just coming off of being sick. And so one of our colleagues actually said to me this morning, she had said like, Amy, I feel like you've been like on the verge of getting sick or not feeling well for a while. And I didn't realize that until she had like held a mirror up to me and she was like, what is going on? And I was like, it's probably because I'm doing a really crappy job taking care of myself. And so, um, I will have some like not full time off next week, but definitely, like definitely more pockets of time um, coming up where I can rest and take care of myself. And so that, and like, and not designated for any particular thing other than like trying to be intuitive and, and give myself what I, what I need. Um, so that feels like some main course type of self-care. Um, and, and yeah, trying to meet myself where I'm at and, and all the things that we just talked about related to grief, but like related to, you know, my, my well-being, which is meeting myself where I'm at, trying to um, hold myself gently and, um, and being really compassionate with, with where I am right now um, so that I can feel, feel good, feel as good as I possibly can as soon as possible. So that, that wraps us up for this episode. Um, Thank you so much, Jess, for being here. Um, we really, really obviously appreciate you having you being on our team, um, but you sharing your insights and your knowledge with us and our listeners, and we hope to have you back soon. Um, if you want to follow along with Jess, um, you can find her on her um, therapy Instagram at JessDesiLCSW. And um, if you want to continue to follow along with us, you can do so on our website at revivecfw.com, on Instagram at revivecfw. Um, you can follow Catherine at Catherine Van Eyck and me at Amy Alvaro LCSW. If you are following along with us on YouTube, please give us a, um, a like, a rating, um, subscribe. Um, same with Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you do, we have a special treat for you. Um, we'll, we'll give you give you a little gift for um, giving us a rating. Um, and you can learn more about that in our show notes. Um, but thank you, everyone, for, for being here, um, for um, listening along with us. And we will see you all soon. And we are wishing you well. Bye.